Welcome to the Lincoln Way Christian Church Podcast. This live recording is brought to you from our Sunday morning worship service. Don't forget to also check out www.lincolnway.org. And now for this morning's message. Last week I began my sermon with a picture of a very beautiful young lady. You saw that last week. Today I want to begin with the picture of another very beautiful young lady. This is a picture of Rachel when she was three years old. Aside from the day of her birth, Rachel's third birthday was probably the most memorable of all the birthdays that she has had up to this point. That's because when she was three, or approaching three, she figured out that birthdays were a time when you could get some serious loot. And the one thing that she wanted more than anything else for her third birthday was a Barbie car. And so Deb and I, being the dutiful parents that we were, bought her a Barbie car for her third birthday. And when we got it home and took it out of the box, we found that it did not come pre-assembled. And so the night before her third birthday, we spent about half the evening after she went to bed putting together that Barbie car. And it was quite a task because it had a lot of small parts to it. The smallest of those plastic parts to that Barbie car was the rear view mirror. But finally, we got it put together, and it looked pretty good. And uh, so we decided that we would set it in the middle of the floor of her bedroom so that the first thing that she saw when she got up on her third birthday was that Barbie car. And she woke up the next morning, and she was overjoyed that she had the one present that she really wanted for her birthday. And all morning, she played with the Barbie car. And as a noon approached, when we were going to have her birthday dinner, uh, her grandparents began to arrive, and I went out and fired up the barbecue gear, grill to cook the hamburgers that we were going to have for lunch. It was at that time that crisis hit her third birthday because Rachel wanted to take her car outside of the house and show her friends. Deb and I did not think that was a good idea because, after all, it had a lot of small parts to it. And if one of them fell off the Barbie car, then Rachel might get upset and... It might put a damper on her birthday. But Rachel was undeterred. She wanted to take the Barbie car outside to show her friends. And finally, Deb and I gave in, and we let her take the car outside. Deb uh, took care of preparations to get the meal ready. I was barbecuing hamburgers, and everything was pretty good for about five minutes. And then all of a sudden, we heard weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth from the front yard. A piece had fallen off of her Barbie car. Her birthday was ruined. Can you imagine what piece it was? It was a rearview mirror in the front yard, which hadn't been mown for two or three months. Well, Deb and my mother went out to look for that little piece off of the Barbie car. I was off the hook because I was frying the hamburgers for uh, lunch. 
And for about 10 minutes, they looked uh, to try to find that little uh, plastic rearview mirror. And folks, it was pretty hopeless. They were not finding the rearview mirror off of that Barbie car. And just about the time Deb and my mother tried to convince Rachel that she could live a meaningful life without the plastic rearview mirror from that Barbie car, I heard words that I will never forget. Because Rachel looked up at her mother and her grandmother and said, My daddy will find it for me. <laughs> the pressure was on. Uh, folks, what I'm about to tell you is true. I wouldn't lie to you in church. I left the barbecue grill, went out to the front yard, and it did not take more than 30 seconds. Reached down in the jungle that was our front yard and picked up the rearview mirror. Rachel went, wow. My mom and Deb went, wow. I went, whew. My daddy will find it for me. My friends, I don't think I have ever found a better expression of wholehearted faith in my personal hearing than that statement that my daughter made when she was three years old. But I must admit to you, it was probably just a little bit unreasonable for her to have that type of faith in me because... I'm fallible, and it was very possible that I was going to let her down in that situation because as her earthly father, I am quite imperfect. But my friends, I want you to know that Rachel has a heavenly father who is absolutely trustworthy. His love is absolute. His power is unshakable. His knowledge is supreme. And because of all that, she can trust him 24-7, 365 days a year. As she attempts to live a strong and stable life, and as she helps Ashlyn and the child that is growing in her womb face an uncertain future, she can rest assured that God's love is certain that his power is sufficient, and that his word is absolutely trustworthy. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the most reasonable thing that Rachel can do with her life is trust God and his word. Now, take it a little bit farther. I want you to know that Rachel is not unique in that. What I have said in regard to my daughter is true of each and every one of us. We can trust God and His Word. The prophet Isaiah probably says it as well as any. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, when he simply says, The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. As far as Isaiah was concerned, the one thing that you can count on in life is the word of God. And that's just as true today as it was back when Isaiah spoke those words. And so as we continue our CSI theme today, I want us to investigate the trustworthiness of the Scripture. And as we do, 
I think we will see three truths which we can build our lives upon. Number one, we can trust God and His Word when He speaks on matters of historical fact. One thing that was very interesting for me to review once again this last week as I prepared this sermon is the fact that the biblical faith is one that is grounded in history to an extent that is unknown by any of the other religions of man. If you look at the other holy book, if you look at the holy books of the other religions of the world, all of them claim to contain spiritual messages which are, to a greater or lesser extent, detached from history. The other holy books of uh, the religions of the world don't have all that much history in them. The Bible is unique in the fact that it is based in history. I hope my figures are correct here. They may just be off a little bit. But for my study, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Of those... Conservatively speaking, 495 of them contain significant chunks of history. That's 42% of the Bible. The Bible is grounded in history as a holy book in a way that you don't see anywhere else in the world. Now that means that if we are to trust what the Bible says about religion, about spirituality, we must first be able to trust what the Bible says about history. And I want you to know that we can trust God and His Word. We can trust the Bible on matters of historical fact. Now, this is not the time nor the place for us to do an exhaustive study of the historical accuracy of the Bible. However, I do want to mention one historical incident which uh, is mentioned in the Bible, which every time I study it, it confirms my faith in the historical accuracy of the Bible. It's the event which is described in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. Uh, There we have one of the most amazing stories of the Old Testament. Now, the setting for Isaiah 36 and 37 is 701 B.C. Judah, under the good king Hezekiah, had just initiated a revival in which they had cast out all of the foreign gods, including the gods of the superpower of the time, the Assyrian Empire. Now... If you failed to worship Assyria's gods, that meant that you de facto were rebelling against Assyria. And so, the king of Assyria did not like Hezekiah's revival. And he invaded uh, Judah, and very quickly he uh, conquered most of the country of Judah, and he was about to put an end to this revival and to the nation of Judah by besieging Jerusalem, conquering that city, killing Hezekiah, and probably deporting all the Jews to who knows where. 
it looked in 701 B.C. like Judah was going down until Hezekiah prayed. And he prayed that God would deliver uh, his city and his people from the Assyrians. And God, through Isaiah, answered Hezekiah's prayer. And you see the words on the screen. God, through Isaiah, said to Hezekiah, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that's just exactly what God did. Because Isaiah 37 goes on and says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. I heard one old preacher say that uh, in regard to this passage, that the morning after the angel of death went through the camp, 185,000 Assyrians woke up dead. I don't know if we can justify that uh, physiologically, but that's what happened. It's an amazing story in the Bible. God delivering his people and destroying the superpower of the time. Now, considering the numbers that there are there, some people might question that account. And there were questions about this account until archaeologists a couple of hundred years ago discovered that little clay tablet which is on the screen right now. That is Sennacherib's prism. And either the original of this or a replica of it is about 50 miles from here in the Oriental Institute Museum in Chicago. This is a clay tablet in which Sennacherib, the king of Assyria at the time that all this happened, describes the exploits of his kingdom. And he talks about his conquests and his victories and the atrocities that he committed against people who uh, dared to rebel against him. And as he talks about his many victories, he talks about Hezekiah. Let's go back one slide. We can. Oh, are we missing a slide? We maybe are. Well, let me just read it to you. Actually, you had it right. I had it wrong. Um, as to Hezekiah the Jew, this is what Sennacherib says, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to his strong cities, walled forts, and countless small villages, and conquered them. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his holy residence, like a bird in a cage. Now, I find that last expression very interesting. Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. Now, if you read through all the verbiage there, folks, Sennacherib, in language befitting a politician, says that he besieged the city of Jerusalem. But in contrast to all of the other accounts in the Sennacherib prison, he says nothing about conquering the city. He just says, I shut up Hezekiah in his royal residence like a bird in a cage. I besieged the city. Well, that's great. What happened? He doesn't talk about that because he's a politician and all politicians are masters at spin, and they're not going to talk about their defeats. And so what we see in this account is the story from the Assyrian side 
just like the story that we see in the Bible, right up to the point where God acts. And of course, Sennacherib has to put the best face on his defeat, so he just leaves that part out. But I've always found it very interesting that here we have a secular historical account from the time from the opponent that runs right along with the biblical account up to the point where a proud politician is not going to talk anymore. Every time I read that story in Isaiah 36 and 37 and think of the Sennacherib prison, I am reminded that I can trust God and His Word when it speaks on matters of historical fact. Now, folks, this is just one example. There are others that I could mention as well. In fact, uh, I'm reminded of the man who's on the screen right now, Keith Scoville. He is a Christian church preacher who's a professor at the University of Wisconsin who has done a lot of work in archaeology. And in an archaeology text which I read several years ago, he pointed out that in no known instance, as far as he was aware, has archaeology ever proven the Bible false. But on many occasions, archaeology has confirmed the truthfulness of the Bible. So I would like to suggest to you today that it is entirely reasonable as we read the history of the Bible to trust God and His Word as He speaks to us in regard to historical fact. Now, we move from there in our CSI investigation. And we can also say very confidently that we can trust God and His Word when He speaks to us on matters of wholesome living. As Jeff said earlier, the Bible really does provide us with a framework to live the best life possible. This is a truth of which I am convinced more and more certainly the longer that I live. If you follow the teachings of the Bible as to how we are to live, it really does work, folks. It's not going to be easy, but it really does work. The one passage of Scripture that I think of whenever I have to remind myself of this truth is Proverbs 15.1. Proverbs 15.1, Solomon simply says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. One of the things that Rachel said several years ago that she learned from me as she was growing up in uh, our home was that you think before you speak. Well, Rachel, dear, I want you to know I am very glad that you have learned that lesson. I also want you to know that there are times when I'd really like to tell people off. There are times when I'd like to give people a piece of my mind. And on a few occasions, I've done it. You know what happens on those few occasions when I've done that? It gets pretty ugly pretty quick. Because you know what usually happens when you really tell somebody off? They really tell you off. 
If you give them a piece of your mind, they give you a piece of their mind, and then it just sort of degenerates from there. Whenever I have disobeyed Proverbs 15.1, it has never turned out well. But when by grace and through prayer I have obeyed what Solomon says there and given a gentle answer in a pressure-filled situation, usually I find that the situation is diffused. As I have trusted God and His Word, as it provides a framework for living the best life possible, generally speaking, I found that it works pretty well. And uh, because of that, I place confidence in God's Word as it speaks to me in matters of wholesome living. You should too. But now the Bible is not just a to-do manual. It's not just moral instructions. It is a record of God's work of salvation. And here's where we really get down to uh, the nitty-gritty, folks. More than anything else in our CSI investigation today, I want you to know that we can trust God and His Word when He speaks to us on matters of salvation. The name Rachel Christine Rachel's first and middle name means Christ is the Lamb. Deb and I picked that very purposely for our first child because we felt that the most important thing that she or anyone for that matter could learn throughout life is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And every time uh, Rachel uh, writes her name, we want her to remember that fact. The term, Rachel, her name actually comes from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says that Christ was as a sheep silent before its shearers. The word sheep there is the Hebrew word Rachel, from which we get the name Rachel. Now that leads me to think about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is probably the most amazing passage in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. Written about 700 B.C., just about the time that Sennacherib was besieging uh, Jerusalem, Isaiah speaks with an eerie clarity about the suffering of Christ. Please listen to these marvelous words. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But, when he, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Every time I read that passage, my friends, it blows me away. Written 700 years before Jesus was born into this world. Yet as I look at that section of Scripture that we have just read, there are at least five different allusions to the historical circumstances surrounding the passion of Christ. And they're coming up on the screen now. Christ's silence during his trial, the injustice of his trial, his death with criminals, his burial in a rich man's grave, and then finally, his resurrection are all spoken of in this passage. 700 years before the fact. How could Isaiah do that? With that level of specific information. It couldn't come out of his own mind. He couldn't have been that good of a guesser. It had to come from God. As he spoke about the salvation which Jesus was going to bring into the world, he spoke with amazing accuracy. As I look at Isaiah 53, I am convinced that we can trust God and his word when he speaks in matters of salvation. Now, once again, this is just one example. I could spend quite a bit of time giving you other examples which point to the same truth, looking at Old Testament passages, which hundreds of years before the fact speak with amazing insight into what happened in the life of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writers spoke with amazing accuracy regarding the salvation which Christ was to offer. And we can trust their words. The Gospels spoke with amazing uh, insight and accuracy regarding the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I really wish we had time to talk about that particularly today with all that is going on with the hysteria surrounding the Da Vinci Code. But once again, we don't have time for that. Let me just say at this point, when God in His Word speaks about the salvation He offers us, we can trust what He said. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And he voluntarily gave himself up to die for my sins and for yours. And to prove that fact, God raised him from the dead. And someday he's coming back to take us home to be with him. John was absolutely right. You can take it to the bank. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, I hope you've caught my drift today. We can trust God and His Word. 
But really, it goes a little bit farther than that. Let's just click that mouse one more time. We must trust God and His Word. What we've talked about today is not designed simply to be a comfort to us. It is designed to lay the challenge of discipleship before us. Because we can trust God in His Word, we must place our trust in Him and His Word. It's been a great privilege for me to uh, work over the last 20 years in the city of St. Louis with a number of African-American churches. And uh, usually when they have Scripture reading in their churches, at the conclusion of the Scripture reading, the individual who has read the Scripture simply says, May God add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of His most holy word. Now, my friends, as we recognize that we can trust God in His word, we need to read it. We need to hear it when it speaks to us. And more than that, we need to obey.